0: Uh, Any open letter fans out there, open letter fans, maybe not, Uh, open letters are kind of a popular thing in our culture right now. It's like if you want to throw shade, as the young people say, uh, if you want to throw shade on someone, if you want to get upset about something publicly or uh, maybe complain about a particular individual, all you have to do is instead of having a conversation like we used to -to face-to-face, you can just post an open letter online, and everybody can read it. And there's some really good ones out there. There's some really weird ones out there. Uh, you can find some really good ones about uh, Kevin Durant, for example. That was really great. Or whatever political leader that you don't like, or a, a certain celebrity. You can just about find an open letter to anyone who has any sort of notoriety or fame. And not all of them are, are bad or just kind of throwing people under the bus. Some of them have had actually profound impacts uh, on our culture, Uh, One in particular I'm thinking about, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail was really, really impactful on our culture. He wrote this letter from jail, and he wrote it, it was an open letter, to fellow clergymen uh, for basically being unwilling and refusing to stand up against racial injustice. So not all open letters are bad. There's some really good ones out there. That's a great example of a profound open letter. Here's an example of an open letter that's on the opposite side of the spectrum. This this one's not profound, and this one's not important, but this one was posted online, and I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, It's titled, An Open Letter to My Garbage Neighbors. I'm just gonna read this to you. Dear neighbors who were partying last night, being loud in your own apartment is one thing, but letting Becky stumble around, slur yelling in the hallway at 3.30 is another 3.30 a.m. I understand that Kristen is excited about her new stewardess job at Air Canada, but she needs to tone it the expletive down, because your neighbors are trying to sleep, and quite frankly, we all know that WestJet is better anyways. Have fun with those terrible benefits, Kristen. And while it's super tragic that Jen found out Chad has been cheating on her, and only a few days after they did that couple's sleigh ride in Canmore, nobody wants to hear about it at four in the morning. Now my cat's awake, he's wondering what is going on, and I've got to explain to him why Tracy is so upset about the way Gilmore Girls season eight ended that she feels the need to wander the hallway of our apartment building yelling about it right now. You must not have heard the battle cry let out at exactly 3.37 a.m. after listening to Megan give her two cents on the serious issue of the gender pay gap for over an hour. Now, you must not have heard it because Jen's aggressive cry yelling didn't let up until 4.02. My point is that after last night, I know your friends better than I know my own friends. I don't have any friends, but that's besides the point. Your friends are loud, and the hallway's a ridiculous place to hang out late at night or ever. Actually, you should probably just move out. You're sort of the worst. Lukewarm regards your super upset neighbors. That is a good example of a common open letter. Here, here's the question. If, if God could truly peer into your soul, and he can, and if he could really see what's going on in your life, and he can, and he were to write an open letter to humanity, what would it say? What would it sound like? Some of you, you walked in this morning, and, and you really do believe if God could write a letter to you, if he, could, if he could kind of just open up and be honest and tell you how he really feels, It would probably sound a lot like that angry rant of an open letter that I just read. That's probably your view of of how God would speak to you. How would God communicate to us if he could write an open letter? Well, we don't have to wonder because Hosea 11, it really is an open letter from God to humanity. It really is God uh, communicating to us. But here's, here's what's bizarre. Instead of it being an angry, aggressive rant where he lashes out, at all of our brokenness and all of our sin, instead of it being like that, it's one of the most shocking, intimate, and vulnerable things that God has ever said in the Bible. In fact, most commentaries, if you read this on Hosea 11, most commentators, they're, they're almost breathless. They don't have words to express and to say the, the, the level of intimacy that God is speaking with. It's almost like we stumbled across, not an open letter online, it's almost like we stumbled across God's private diary or journal that we weren't ever supposed to find, that he wrote some stuff about us that he didn't want anybody else to see except he's, he's put it here for us to read together. So this is incredible. Without further ado, I just want to show you how God feels about you by reading Hosea 11, starting in verse one. We'll read up to verse 11. Here's what it says. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. And the more that they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I, it was I who taught Ephraim how to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? That's another word for Israel. How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? These are two different cities that got destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. How can I treat you like these cities? And then listen to this. My heart recoils Within me, my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return to them I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So this is bizarre, and I just want to pull out three things. The way God feels about humanity, if he could be completely, totally honest and just open up his heart before you and lay it bare, there are three things that I want you to see that he says in this passage that are just breathtaking. Here's the first one. I want you to notice the fatherly nature of, Of God's love, the fatherly nature of God's love. Will you take a minute and just think about the various uh, relationships and pictures in our world that God could have pointed to to try to express the way he feels about us. There's lots of options in our world. Uh, God could have pointed to uh, the relationship between a slave and a master and said that, that right there is the way that I feel about you. I'm the master, you're the slave, do what I want you to do, don't complain about it, don't fuss about it, just here's the rules, just do it, because I'm the boss, and you're my slave, you're my servant. God could have pointed at that relationship and said, yep, that's it, that captures the essence of how I feel about humanity. He, he actually could have pointed to the relationship between an employee and an employer, and said, well, that's more like it. And an, an employee and an employer relationship, they, they, they're, you know, kind of a give and take. The employer wants certain things done. And so, uh, you, you know, there's, there's some kindness there. And, but if you do these things for me, I'll do these things for you. It's very transactional. God could have said that. That right there really sums up how I feel. He could have picked the relationship between a government and its citizens, and said, well, that really, that gets more at it right there. The, the government creates laws and rules, and, and, and if you just pay taxes and try to be a good person and do the right thing, then you can live here and everything's going to be okay. Maybe God could have said, that's really what it's like. But he doesn't pick that. He doesn't pick any of those things. In fact, he doesn't even pick the relationship between a brother and a sister or between two good friends and says, that's it right there. Now, the picture that he picks, and there's two in Hosea, that are breathtaking. The first one is the relationship between a husband who is madly in love with a wife who repeatedly is unfaithful on him. And God sees that and he says, that is how I feel about humanity. A husband who can't help but love his wife despite the ways that she is repeatedly unfaithful, chronic adultery, running after other lovers. And in Hosea 11, we get another picture of the way God feels, and this one is so bizarre. It's the relationship between a father and a son. Have you ever seen a father and a son? that really do love each other and have a lot of respect for each other and the father is, is kind and he's gracious and he, he, he's for his son and, and I get like a lot of us didn't have dads like this. Some of us did but but listen, like can you imagine, have you ever seen that where a dad is just for his son and, and the son is responding to the love of the father and what God is saying is that is the picture that I want humanity to think of when they think about my love. It's the love from a father. Now, Look at verse 1 again, because this is what he says. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. There's a really important clarification that I want to give you here, because it's not as though God went on this journey or this hunt to try to find a picture so that he could hold it up and say, yeah, that, that, that's how I feel about you. No, it's not that at all. Um, God isn't finding, he's not like stumbling across a dad who loves his son and goes, wow, that's amazing. That reminds me of how I love humanity. It's actually the opposite, that God has always been and is a loving father that God has existed in this this Trinitarian unity, one God with three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and before you were made or anything was made that was made, God has always been a father who has loved his son, the second person of the Trinity. And God actually created out of that this relationship and this dynamic between a father and a son just to show you how he feels about you. There's a great book uh, by a guy named Michael Reeves called Delighting in the Trinity where he he tries to help you understand this idea and he talks about God as Father. I just want to read a little passage from that. He says, so what does it mean that God is a Father? Well, first of all, it does actually mean something. Not all names do. My dog is called Max, but that doesn't really tell you anything about him. The name doesn't tell you what he is or what he's like, but if I can make the jump... The father is called the father, listen, because he is a father. And a father is a person who gives life, who begets children. Now that insight is like a stick of dynamite in all our thoughts about God. For if, before all things, God was eternally a father, then this God is an inherently outgoing, life-giving God. He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create. From eternity, he has been life-giving. So before you were made or the world was formed, God was inherently a loving father towards the son, Jesus. Giving of himself, pouring out his love. And here's what's really bizarre. He actually created the relationship between a dad and a son just to try to give you a little glimpse of how he feels about you. He created the relationship between a mom and and, and her child just to give you a little glimpse of how he feels about you. That's why he made moms and dads, just to to help you understand the way that he feels about you, right? It, It would be weird if I went up to my dad and I said, I have, or you have my smile, right? That'd be weird. He'd be like, no, dummy, you have my smile, right? I was the one that that had you, and, and you took after me. You have my smile, and that's what God is saying here. He's saying, listen, it's not that you look at your child and go, huh, that's interesting. I wonder if God saw the way that I feel about my child and thought, I love humanity like that. No, 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 no. He actually felt such deep, profound love that he's like, I've got to create some relationship, some dynamic, a father and a son relationship, so that they might get a glimpse of how I really feel about my people. Now, here's the question. What do you have to do to get God to be loving towards you like that? Here's the lie that is really common in Oklahoma in our culture. The lie in Oklahoma is that you could get God to love you if you try really hard. If you clean up a few things about your life, if you would adjust a few things internally and get over a few different uh, struggles and addictions that you have, if you could just fix a few things, God would really love you. He kind of likes you, he kind of can stand you. He, he, he's a little off-put by some of the things that you do. But if you could just get your act together, then God would be a loving Father towards you. And I just want to say that nothing could be further from the truth out of Hosea chapter 11. Look at it, verse 1 again. It says, when Israel was what? A child. <laughs> I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. He talks about Israel being a child and and bondage enslaved in Egypt. Uh, Have you ever been around a child before? Silly question. Yep, we all have. Uh, Here's what's so crazy about children. They can't do anything for you. We have a six-month-old, a little boy named Bear, and love him to death. But can I just be honest? Bear does not help me with the bills at all. He doesn't contribute to the family. He literally just sits around, he cries, he robs me of sleep, he makes a mess. The other day, he had, and this is true, the worst blowout in the history of his existence. And I can actually say that. Like, it was so bad, it's one of those that you're like, I'm just going to cut the clothes off and throw them in the trash. It's not even worth trying to get it over his head. We're just going to, you know, slice these right away and never see that we're him them in the backyard, right? It was all up his neck and back. It's like, oh, what have we brought into the world, and yet, here's the thing. Every time I look at Bear, every time I, every time I see him, my heart, it, it bubbles over with joy and affection and love. It really does. He's a child. He doesn't do anything for me. But that's not the point. He's my child. That's why I love him. Does that make sense? You don't have to do anything to get God to love you this way. Hey, let me tell you something that's even more shocking Maybe you walked away from church. Maybe you've walked away from Jesus. Maybe this is your first time back in a long time, and you're wondering, could he ever welcome me home? He has never stopped feeling this way about you. He just hasn't. Because fathers don't stop loving their kids. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved them. When they were in Egypt, what could they do in Egypt? nothing. They were slaves. They couldn't give God anything. They couldn't bargain anything. They were bankrupt. They, they had nothing. And God said, yep, that's when I loved you, when you were slaves and when you were a child. That's when God loves you. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, explain this reality. God says, it was not because you were more in number than any, any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But, why does God love us? It is because the Lord loves you. And it is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why does God love you? Here's the scandalous truth. He loves you because he loves you. Unbelievable. The fatherly nature of the love of God. That's Hosea chapter 11. God wants to write a letter to you. He wants to open up the the core of his heart to you, the window into his soul, and what he wants to say is, I love you like a father would love a child. Here's the second thing I want you to see. It's not just the fatherly nature of of God and his love, but I want you to look at the involvement of God's love. Notice what Hosea 11 goes on to say. Look at verse one. When Israel was a child, I loved them, and out of Egypt I called my son. And here's the tragedy. But the more they were called, the more they went away. And they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Another translation in the Hebrew uh, basically doesn't say yoke. It says uh, coddling, and it's talking about, uh, take or a suckling. It's talking about a suckling baby, an infant, and putting that infant up against your cheek. And what God is saying is, you are the little infant that I pressed up against my cheek in love, and I fed you. But you kept running. And then look at verse 8. And then notice the pain in the heart of God. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? these cities that God destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah? How can I destroy you? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Do you know the uh, story in the New Testament about the prodigal son? The father had two sons. One of them was obedient but overly religious. Uh, the other one was basically so broken on the inside that he looked his dad in the eye and he said, I wish that you were dead because all I want is the inheritance that you have. And so would you just go ahead and give me the inheritance? I, you're, you're in effect dead to me and I just want your stuff. And so the father heartbreakingly gives his son the inheritance and the son leaves the house and he runs from home and he goes and he spends it on, on prostitutes and just kind of partying and enjoying life and it leads in this broken, broken way. Hosea 11 is the Old Testament version of that story. God is saying, I'm your father and I, I was with you when you were a child and I loved you and I, I've, I've provided for you and I've fed you and, and I took care of you and I pressed you up against my cheek and, and my heart was just so filled with joy when I look at you and you repeatedly leave every time I call you run even harder away. You're, you're, you're breaking me apart on the inside. He says, my heart recoils within me. You're tearing me up on the inside. And, and it's difficult for us because there's not language in our English language to fully unpack what is being said here in the Hebrew. So to maybe help you understand a little bit, I want you to think about the difference between an acquaintance and a friend and a child. An acquaintance, maybe someone you know, that has a lot of problems, a lot of issues, lots of wounds, lots of baggage, if you know someone that has a lot of problems and is just filled with issues, chances are, and I, this is confession, if you're anything like me, you'll try your hardest to avoid that person, right? A little moment of honesty for all of us to participate in. You'll look at that person and be like, you know what, I'm already on Facebook. I don't need more drama. Thanks very much. I'm gonna keep you at arm's length because I got enough issues on my own, I'm not going to involve myself with you. But if the person is already your friend, someone you already love, someone that you're already kind of in relationship with, when that person has a lot of wounds, struggles, and baggage, and brokenness, and issues, you're, you're more apt, aren't you, to drift towards that person in a loving relationship. You're more apt to, to get close to that person, and talk to them, and engage them on their issues. And even if they call late at night, chances are you might stay up late on the phone, processing their issues. You might even stay up three nights in a row till 2 a.m. But you know what happens on the fourth night when they call? You're like, I'm gonna let that go to voicemail. You know what? I like this person. I even love this person. And they're a friend, but enough is enough. They're gonna leave that on the voicemail and I'll get to that another day. But if the person is your child, it's so different. If the person is your child you're so involved in their life, you're so deeply connected to what's going on, you're so attached to them that their issues become your issues. And their wounds become your wounds, and their problems become your problems, and their baggage becomes your baggage. And all of a sudden, your love has entangled and involved you in the life of this child, and you will do whatever it takes to try to press in. And even if you're angry, and even if you're mad, and even if there's weird mixtures of emotions going on, there's still this driving love that's taking place, and it breaks your heart because it's not an acquaintance, it's not a friend, it's a child. And God is trying to say, that's how it is with us. I look at you, God says, and and I'm entangled inside of you. I'm involved in your life. I'm not this distant father. Like, what's going on in you, it's your problems have become my problems. And my heart, it's recoiling within me. This has become very real for me watching my mom and dad struggle with my younger brother. I have nine brothers and sisters, so, you know, they struggle with all of us, but, uh, and in our own way, but one of my little brothers is a heroin addict, and watching my mom and dad literally be ripped apart, he's a grown man, he's married, he's out of the house, but it's their son, and he's ruining his life, and it's spiraling out of control, and he and they're being ripped apart on the inside. And I'm watching my mom and dad do this and, and I, I don't even have to tell them, like you should try to love them. They're like angry and filled with love at the same time. And I don't have teenagers, but those of you with teenagers in the room, maybe you're nodding your head a lot right now that you can relate to that weird experience. I'm angry, but I love and I'm entangled. The involvement of the love of God. That's how he feels about you. I want you to think, with me for just a minute about the grandness of the universe that we live in. Think with me about the grandness of our universe. Uh, We measure the universe in terms of light years. I'm sure you knew that. Does anybody know how big a light year is? Good, I'd be worried if you did because that's kind of a dorky thing to know. Um, But just in case you were curious, a light year is about 5.88 trillion miles. One light year, 5.88 5.88 trillion miles. Can you wrap your head around that? Our galaxy, the Milky Way, is about 100,000 light years in diameter. Now, all of a sudden, the head is starting to like burn up the engines of our brain. We can't do the math. One light year is 5.88 trillion miles, the Milky Way is 100,000 light years in diameter. But that's actually pretty puny compared to another galaxy known as M87, which is 980,000 light years in diameter. 980,000. And that's not as big as Hercules A. It's bigger, weighing in at 1.5 million light years. And that's not even as big as Andromeda Galaxy, 2.537 million light years in diameter. Do you feel small yet? According to the best astronomers, there are at least 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. We're just talking about a galaxy being this big. According to the best astronomers, there's at least 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. Do you feel tiny? Now listen to these words. Think about the grandness of God. Tim Keller says, this is a God who the Bible tells us has measured the universe with the breadth of his hand, This is a God, the Bible tells us, the planets are like specks of dust on the scales and yet God has done something so that the brokenness of one tiny little creature here on earth, on this tiny little speck of dust, can go into the heart of God like a shaft. How could that be? He's so involved in your life that what you do and what you don't do goes into his heart and it tears him apart from the inside. His heart recoils within him. It's the involvement of his love. We don't have words in the English language. It's this weird mixture of when it says his heart recoils and it grows warm and tender. It's this weird mixture of all these strong emotions. And, and a similar phrase is used in Genesis to talk about Joseph When he was in Egypt and and he hadn't seen his brothers in years and years. And then finally, his little brother Benjamin shows up and he'd never met Benjamin. And when he lays eyes on Benjamin, the same phrase is used of Joseph. And he runs out of the room and he begins to weep because he's moved, he's overwhelmed with emotion. Here's what God is saying in Hosea 11 when he thinks about you and your sin and your brokenness, it makes God weep. That's a big deal that God would feel that way about human beings. He's overwhelmed. His heart recoils. What kind of God would make himself that vulnerable to his creatures? The God of the Bible does. C.S. Lewis says this in his great book, The Four Loves. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And it's amazing that Hosea 11 is God telling us, I refuse to put my heart in a box. I refuse to put it in a coffin. I'm laying it out on the table and you can do with it what you want. You can throw it on the ground. You can crush it, but I will be involved. I, I love you like a father loves a son and my love is involved and deeply entangled and connected to your life. That's profound. And that brings me to the last thing I want you to see. I want you to see the costliness of God's love. Not just the involvement of his love, but I want you to see the costliness of God's love. I don't know if you notice this, but in verse five through seven, verses five through seven, God actually promises to bring wrath and judgment on his people for their sin. Right, let me read it to you. Hosea 11, look at verse six. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. It's hell-bent. They're hell-bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. This is the angry side of a parent. I'm done. I'm just done. I'm angry. You've done so much damage. I can't do this anymore. And then look at this. In verse eight and nine, he promises miraculously that he won't bring his wrath Look at this. He says this in verse nine. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. How does God do this? On the one hand, he's like, I'm gonna come in wrath Because you've created a lot of damage. You've done a lot of stuff. You've sinned in some profound ways. I am coming in judgment and wrath. If you don't want me, fine. Then I'll give you what you want and I'll just hand you over. He's coming with wrath. And then the, the next breath. But how could I do that? How could I give you up? How could I pour out my wrath on you? No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm not going to come in wrath. How does Jesus, how does God solve this divine dilemma that he feels. Because on the one hand, he can't just forgive you and just sweep the sin under the rug of the universe, pretending like it never happened and kind of move on like it was no big deal. Because he's so holy. He's like the burning sun. You can't touch the sun and not burn up. God is that type of holiness. You can't just come up to him with your sin and him go, yeah, it's no big deal, it's fine. He's a burning flame of holiness. He has to punish sin. But on the, the other hand, he's not just a judge, he's a lover. And he has to love. He's unwilling to not love. How does he solve this divine dilemma? I I have to punish you, but I have to love you. Here's how he does it. He does it in the cross of Jesus Christ. God, in the most incredible, gracious act in human history, he enters our world and becomes even more involved and entangled in our lives. He literally becomes human and he lives the perfect life that we never lived. In fact, it's interesting, Matthew 2 in his gospel quotes Hosea 11 to talk about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, and here, Jesus lives the perfect life that Israel didn't, that we couldn't, and he goes to the cross, and this innocent Jesus who did not sin He takes wrath upon himself and sin upon himself and shame upon himself so that he can be both just and loving because he's unwilling. He's unwilling to pour wrath out on us. He would rather absorb it in himself than see you suffer. That is the grace and love of Jesus on the cross. He is saying to you, I would rather me take the pain and absorb the hurt and, and, and deal with all of this and take your shame and sin so that you in its place could only have love, could only have grace, could only have forgiveness. People ask all the time, they say, they say why, why can't God just forgive If God is God, if he really is God, if he has all the power, why can't he just snap his fingers and forgive? Why does Jesus have to die on a cross? That makes no sense. Is it like God kicking the dog to feel better about us? I mean, I don't understand what's happening there. Well, here's why. It's because real love and real forgiveness is always costly. Here's what I mean. If someone drives their car into your house on an accident, they drive their car into your house, maybe a friend that you know accidentally drove their car into your house, you have two options. Option number one, you can withhold forgiveness and say, you know what, you've got to pay for that. You've got to pay for that, there's some damage here, and that's on you. Or option number two, you can forgive them. But if you truly forgive them, and you truly release them and you truly love them and, and say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to release you of, of, of this mistake and of this accident that just happened, if you really do that, that means that you have to pay for the repairs to get your house done, or else your house is going to be broke. Someone's got to pay the debt. Someone's got to pay the price. Someone's got to fix it. And you know this on a relational basis. If someone hurts you, you can withhold forgiveness and make them pay, or you can, you can actually forgive them. But if you really forgive someone, then what you're saying is, I'm going to absorb all the pain internally, all the hurt, all the stuff that you've said, I'm absorbing it so that you can be released. What Jesus is doing on the cross is he's saying, I would rather absorb the pain. I'd rather absorb the hurt. I'd rather absorb the sin so that I could release you of that. Hosea 11 is God processing out loud, almost in a diary-like fashion. He's writing to humanity, how can I give you up? What do I do with you? My heart's broken inside. And the loud, resounding answer is Jesus crying out on a cross, it is finished. I've loved you and I've been just and I haven't swept your sin under the rug but I'm your father and you're my child. That's the statement from God on the cross. So where do we go from here? What do we do with this? Well, here's what I want you to do. Would you take a second and stand with me? Hosea 11 is God's open letter to you. He wants you to know the fatherly nature of his love. He wants you to know the involvement of his love. He wants you to know the costliness of his love. This does two things for us. On the one hand, this love absolutely humbles us. If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, Your sin was so horrific that the body of Jesus had to be broken for you. Your guilt is so pervasive that the blood of Jesus had to be shed so that you could be forgiven. If you walk in the room filled with arrogance and pride because of your own self righteousness, you have never seen God on a cross because he went there for you. So here's the first thing I want, want to invite you to do. We go to God in response, and we let the love of God humble us. What you did this week matters to God. His heart recoils within him. How could I give you up? What you failed to do this week matters to God. He's a father. He thinks of you like his child, and his heart broken and torn apart on the inside. That should humble you today. But here's the other thing that the love of God does for us. The love of God lifts us up, doesn't it? Doesn't just humble us. Listen to this, you need to hear this. The amazing reality is that God would rather absorb his own wrath than see you suffer. That is profound Love. He loved you so much that he was willing to leave the comforts of heaven and come for you and go to a cross for you. He was willing on that cross to absorb your shame and your sin so that you wouldn't have to bear it anymore. So today, we come and we experience the humbling love of God. It kind of lowers us down, but then we experience the lifting love of God. It lifts us back up and we realize the most important being in the universe has set his involved fatherly affections on me. Man, nothing else in our world could do that for you. Your job can't do that for you. Your family can't do that for you. Your spouse can't do that for you. Your sex life can't do that for you. Your singleness can't do that for you. Your money, your stuff, your possessions, nothing can give you the love that you really are searching for, but the most important being in the universe has set his fatherly affections on you as you are, with nothing to offer, nothing to bring to the table, you're just a child, and he loves you.